This morning is September 5th, 2010. On the Hebrew calendar, we are quickly approaching the first of Tishri, which is uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot of the seventh month with all of the feasts. I've been teaching about those things a lot, so today I thought that I would teach on some other subjects uh, that relate spiritually, but today will not be a lesson in, uh, in Hebrew roots. Our message today for people that are taking notes is acclimated to the darkness. Yeah, I didn't expect many amens from that. <laughs> Friends, various dictionaries define acclimated in a variety of ways, but they can all be summarized by saying, changes that take place in you to cause you to better endure, endure your environment. So, if you are acclimated to the heat, it means that your body has become accustomed to its surroundings so that the heat no longer has the same dramatic effect upon you. If you're acclimated to the stresses involved in your job, it means that you have now become accustomed to what the job entails and it no longer has a dramatic effect on you. But what does it mean when we become acclimated to our spiritual surroundings? That is not such a good thing. It means that it no longer has a dramatic effect on you. Sin may cease to be shocking and may simply be commonplace. We were called the entire earth. Our job in Hebrew is called tukun ha-olam. It means to go fix the world that is broken. But when we have become accustomed to the way that it is, we cease to function in a way that would cause it to be what it should be, what it will be, what it can be. As I began thinking about this, I remembered a time, some of you know I'm blessed to have two fathers, a biological father and a father who raised me. And my biological father came to visit me in Lafayette, Louisiana. Is there anybody in here from Louisiana today? All right, now you Texans form a human shield around me at certain points during this, this message. Uh, my dad came, and he was coming at the time from Idaho, I think. Got on a Harley in the middle of the night to escape his life and drove to Lafayette, Louisiana. I had been there about a year, and when my father got there, uh, I met him at a gas station because he didn't know how to get to my house. And the old man that was pumping gas at the gas station says, uh, Welcome to Lafayette. Y'all not around about from here, yeah? And my dad leaned over and said, These people talk funny. <laughs> I said, You should have heard them a year ago when I first got here. <laughs> but isn't that how it is? You become accustomed to your surroundings. Things that were once surprising, shocking, suddenly become commonplace. They become normal. Turn with me to James, the first chapter. We're going to read the 27th verse together. Tell me when you're there. 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 James 1, the 27th verse. Religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Before we finish the rest of that, we have focused on this a great deal. Uh, our church is pretty focused upon meeting the needs of orphans and widows in this country, in other countries of the world, in and outside of the church. But if all you do are meet the needs of widows and orphans, and you don't pay attention to the second part of this verse, you're not any different than some worldly philanthropist. 
The second part of the verse is equally as important to the first part. It says, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. All around us, all of the time, is what the Bible calls a flood of dissipation. And this flood of dissipation has a way of trying to stick to you. There are ways in which that this happens that are subtle to the point you may not realize it. Winston Churchill visited our country in 1949. He visited a place called MIT. And MIT was famous for something at that point among um, the intellectual elites. The Nazis had been somewhat mystic in some of their approaches to warfare. They believed um, in supernatural things, even occultish things. And the United States began to investigate in psyops at that point. They were really looking into whether it was possible to control someone's thoughts or not. And Winston Churchill went to examine that at MIT. And he's quoted as saying, I hope that I never lived to see the day where thought control is possible. I would not want to live in a world like that. Well, I'm sure you can say amen to that, but have we thought about the ways in which thought control happens? There's a subtle frog-in-the-kettle-like desensitizing, a brainwashing going on. It happens little by little so that we don't notice it anymore. What was so morally offensive, so shocking in 1950, today is comical. May 20th, 2004, I had a chance to meet in a group of about 40 people with a man named Michael Frown. And Michael had been the press secretary for Benjamin Netanyahu from 1996 to 1999. He began by talking about the influence of media. I mean, he was a press secretary, so he wanted to talk about the influence of media on his country. One of the things that he said is, you think your media is bad. You think CNN is the communist news network there. You ought to hear what happens in Israel. We're all sitting eagerly waiting to hear what he has to say. He said, I arranged a press junket. We did it at the Sea of Galilee. We thought it was a place the Jews and Christians could coexist together. And only the media came. And Benjamin Netanyahu took off his shoes, took off his socks, and walked out upon the Sea of Galilee. I thought everyone would be impressed with this. I opened up the headlines the next morning to see the headline said, Benjamin Netanyahu cannot swim. <laughs> you know? The media has a way of twisting things in whatever way they would like, and it has an effect. But I'm not here to talk to you about media. I'm here to tell you that no one gets a chance to tell you what to think. No one gives you a chance or, or, or can determine for you how you think on a certain subject. But Michael's point that day was the environment around you certainly determines what you think about. You can remember, remember a time in the 90s when the entire nation got a chance to learn what the definition of is is. Our children got a chance to hear words spoken on the nightly news broadcasts that are not normally spoken outside of a bedroom. The environment around us may not determine how you think, but it has a wearing effect on what you think about. As children of God, there are certain things that we're not even supposed to mention. Shameless deeds done in darkness. We're supposed to think on whatever is pure, profitable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think on those sort of things. But if what we're surrounded by all of the time is wanton violence, gratuitous 
explicit sexuality. It has an effect in the church that I don't think the church has recognized. I want you to know today, if you think that I'm preaching about you, I am. But I'm also preaching about the person on your left and right, and also the one that I see when I look in the mirror every morning. This flood of dissipation is having an effect upon the church in a way that is shocking. Turn with me to Psalm 26. Tell me when you're there. Y'all are quiet this morning. Are you sleepy? There. 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 I like very much that Adam's turning in his actual Bible and doesn't have that electric thing. He used to beat me to the scripture before I even called it out. <laughs> Psalm 26, verse 5. I abhor, that word abhor means strongly hate, the assembly of evildoers, and I refuse to sit with the wicked. This is a psalm of David. This is something that could be said in David's day without a problem. I refuse to be associated with the wicked. I won't sit with them. I won't play nice with them. I won't fellowship with them. Today we've become chummy with Sodom and Gomorrah. We've become social with Sodom. We have no problem just coexisting. Maybe our age of enlightenment is actually darkness, although it's called enlightenment. How about this? Turn with me to the right in your Bible to Psalm 119. Longest psalm in the Bible. It's got a lot of beautiful things to say. And when you get to Psalm 119, we'll be looking at the 163rd verse. There. 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 Uh, let me there. just get one other disclaimer out there. If I offend you this morning, I aim to. I hope to. If you leave and nothing offended you, then we're probably not doing a good job. Because the truth exposes darkness in us. It is offensive to the point where I want to change it so that I don't have to become offended anymore. 163. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Can the church say this anymore? Can the church organization say, I hate everything that is false and I love God's word and want to be ruled by it? Or are we ruled by consensus and democracy? See, this would be a chance to be, I don't know, a thermostat. Something that can change the temperature rather than a thermometer. Something that only is a gauge of the temperature in the church. When we talk about the church, that's easy. But remember, you are the church. Does your life jump out and say, I hate everything that is false. And I cling to what is true. Or do you only hate falsehood in other people, but expect it in yourself? Accept it in yourself. Romans 12, verse 9 says, Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Could these bumper stickers be on our church buses? Could these bumper stickers be tattooed across your chest and you be okay with that? Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. It's an interesting thing. I have noticed that a sinner is kind of an extinct creature now. Now, we don't say such and such is evil. That person is a sinner. Instead, we say, you know, they're not living God's best for them. We say things that gloss over the truth and do not show a hate for evil and a clinging to righteousness. The internet and TV have brought Sodom and Gomorrah into our living rooms and we've become acclimated to it. 
That is, we've adjusted to our environment to the point that the inner protest has died. The sin that used to shock us now simply amuses us. We've learned to laugh when we ought to cry. I don't know what's sadder, the fact that I have to get up and walk out of movies or that I went into it in the first place. And I didn't even tell you about the ones I didn't walk out of. Things that ought to make us cry We've learned to be so chummy with the world that they make us laugh. Yeah. Genesis 13. I want to read to you something in verse 12. If you don't like to turn in your Bible, you won't be comfortable here. There. There. But I want you to learn to be comfortable doing the things that people of God do. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I rarely lie when I preach. There. There. And if I do, it always has to do with the fault of my wife. I can't believe y'all told her the other day when I said that during the service. I thought I was saint because she was back there. I want you to know she caught me when I got home. Genesis 13, verse 12. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. What a place to make your home. Go live in a place, choose an environment that the people are sinning in an exceeding fashion. They are wicked. Does it have an effect? Well, if 2 Peter 2.7 did not refer to Lot as righteous, and I want you to know Lot was righteous and the Word says it, if it did not say that he was righteous, would you have any clues from his life that he was? Look at how his environment degraded his life. His wife died longing for Sodom and Gomorrah. His daughters... Lord, I, I don't want to mention what his daughters did. If you don't know the story, you'll be shocked at the things that are in the Bible. He had great loss in his life. His legacy might be best described as an incestuous birthing of enemies for God's people. Did his environment have an effect on him? You know, makes you wonder. Was Lot a light to Sodom and Gomorrah, or did he just get used to the darkness? What a question for the people sitting in this room. Are we a light to the world, or have we just got used to sitting in the darkness? I was in a city called Tel Aviv, Yafo. This is the biblical city of Joppa, and the modern commerce city in Israel, their business capital, Tel Aviv. And Joppa has become Yafo because in Arabic they don't have P's in their language and they rarely use J's. This ought to tell you that the biblical city has now been overrun by something that is not biblical. But having said that, there is no Grenza, there's no border, there's no military there. And I was growing bored with our tour group. So my buddy GW and I left fairly late at night, and went for a walk. And we walked and walked and walked, and we crossed a line we didn't know was there. Saints, have you ever done that? You ever crossed a line you didn't know was there, and it was too late, you had already crossed it? We were now in a city where Jews were not welcome, Christians were not welcome, and I was wearing clothing that advertised both. It's about 11 o'clock at night. 
because we were thirsty and hungry, we went to what we thought was a restaurant. And when I walked into the restaurant, the first thing that I noticed is we descended down from the street level about three stories. That was the beginning of my uncomfortableness, having crossed a line and then beginning a descent. Have you ever been one of those restaurants you need a flashlight to read the menu? Yeah, this was like that. If you actually get your food, you have to eat it by faith and not by sight. <laughs> so I'm sitting in this dungeon-like environment, crossing a line that I should not have crossed, descending to a place I had no business being. And slowly my eyes began to adjust to the darkness. And I realized what I saw in the people's eyes around me was not welcoming. It was not warming. It was not friendly. And it was not somewhere I should be. And let me ask you something. When you cross the line that you shouldn't cross, when you've descended to a level unbefitting of a prince of God, when you find yourself sitting in darkness and your eyes finally do start to adjust to the darkness, is your response, well, I'm already here, I might as well eat? Or do you get up and run from the table knowing that it might cost you your life to be there? See, I was in a situation where physically I might end up dead. I wish they were all so obvious. Because sometimes we get into this situation spiritually and we don't realize that it is putting us to death. You walk out and feel unscathed because after all, nobody knows about the click of the mouse. Nobody knows about the extra glass from the bottle. Nobody knows except your wife about the word that you spoke. Nobody was there. Nobody saw it but you died a little bit that moment. The pollution of the world has a wearing effect on the people of God. You're either at war with it, or you're making a treaty with it. Church, this is something we're thinking about. You need to get out before you lose the ability to even distinguish good from evil. See, the strange thing is, is over time I could see things more clearly in there it was almost as if the light had come on, except it hadn't. I had just gotten used to the darkness. Don't tell me there's not a message in that. I can feel it in the room. We can call something that is light, or we can call something rather that is darkness light. And the truth is, it's just darkness we've gotten used to. It's always been there. We never got rid of it. I want to tell you I'm not here to beat you up today. It's really preachers like me that has failed. We live in a time with more artificial illumination in the physical sense and the spiritual sense than there's ever been before. But there's less light. Our programs, our entertainment, our self-help gospel life preaching cannot substitute for the burning passion of the S-O-N. Just can't. And we've tried. Well, if our worship was a little more lively, I mean, maybe we could bring in dry ice and warm water. I mean, whatever might work, a visual display. Never mind the fact that all the people on the worship team are lost and the whole youth group is sleeping with each other and the men are cheating on their taxes and their wives. Never mind all of that. Let's just look good on the outside. A lack of backbone in the pulpit has allowed the sheep to become social with Sodom, chummy with Gomorrah, to the point that we're not shining the light, we're just getting used.
to the dark. Turn with me to Genesis 1. I want you to notice God's very first order of business. Genesis 1, we'll start in verse 3. That way I can stay free of the tohu vavohu. <laughs> Good, some of you remember that message. Isn't it fun to say? Formless and void. Chaos. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The very first thing that our God does in a situation is create an advocacy force. To create something that is associated with Him. To create an extension of Himself. Church, this is what we're supposed to be. An extension of God. When God spoke into your life and called you a son of God, He was like saying, let there be light. And if He said it, it's done. You are what He's called you. Whether you're a good one or a bad one, you are. God saw that the light was good. Because if it's not good, it's not light. And he separated the light from the darkness. You know, the most ancient of the rabbinical sources say something about this. They say that this is the point of the entire book and the rest is commentary. Our God creates light and then causes that light to separate out darkness. Come on, if it's dark in here, can you attack it with a shovel? I mean, can you shovel the darkness out of the room? No. Can you yell at it? I mean, come on, charismatics. Can you rebuke it until it leaves? No. There is only one thing that separates light and darkness. That's light entering the room. But where there is light, darkness flees. Have you never turned over a rock on a sunny day? Whatever is under it runs from it. does not want to be exposed by it. But what do we do when the church organization that passes itself off as a bride and behaves more like a whore has gotten used to the dark places. Our churches are full of prodigals, living like swine and dressing like angels. In our self-enlightenment, we've learned to dress the part but have not learned to live the part. What we've become most adept at is demanding our very best life now. I'm going to heaven! Why are you going to heaven? Because I made a decision at an altar! How's that work out for you the day after that decision? the month after, the year after. You cannot run in a race that you did not start at the starting line. The starting line in Christianity is the cross. And it is an embracing, a piercing light that comes into you and exposes the areas of you that deserve to be nailed on the cross. You cannot run with the King of Kings when you did not start at the starting line. Well, brother, I've always been basically a good good person, but you know, a few years ago I decided to go to church. Well, good. You're going to church, but you're also going to hell. There's only one, one way. There's a litmus test for it. You want all the light you can get in your life, expose every dark deed so that you have a chance to change? Or do you just want to conform this social gospel that's being preached to suit your life and call yourself blessed and look good with your friends? Boy, what a great question. What a great test. 
you need to decide where you stand with them. This preacher's working it out in my own life in fear and trembling daily. I gotta tell you, this is a hard message to preach because I'm guilty on almost every account that I'm indicting you on. Genesis calls light, light, and darkness, darkness. But we preachers have learned to say, it's just not God's best for you, honey. The Bible doesn't use language like that. You just cut the legs off of your dog and pulled the toenails off your little brother. Well, it's just not God's best life for you. Is homosexuality wrong? Well, it's not God's best. That's like saying suicide is not good for your health. <laughs> Make no mistake, I'm not here to pick on homosexuals. I find fault with preachers, including myself, for not making a clear delineation. The very first thing that God does is introduce His light and separate it from darkness, and now you have a measure with to measure all of God's working throughout history. It's either light or it's dark. He instituted the day as a reminder to us daily of the process we're in. Every morning you wake up, it's dark, at least some of you, and you watch the sunrise and chase it off. That instructs you on how you should live that day. The light in you needs to chase off darkness. A declared sinner is an extinct animal. We simply say, oh, the brother's got a weakness. Tolerance, open-mindedness, so-called enlightenment is not moving into the light that is God. It is just getting accustomed to darkness. Have you seen the bumper sticker that has all of the religious symbols on it and says, coexist? Oh, so broad-minded. So, so open. Listen to what Isaiah says. It's Isaiah 5. will be verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If cutting the heads off of people around the world is not evil, I don't know what is. I don't care whether they firebomb our church. I don't care whether or not they write letters, protest, call us intolerant. Islam is evil. When's the last time we had a president who said something was evil? No, now they're just misunderstood. Evil is evil. Darkness is darkness and light is light. If you can clearly see that in some other people, why do we struggle so hard to see the truth about ourselves? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. They are so smart, so enlightened, so broad-minded. 2 Corinthians 6 says this, Do not be yoked. In the Bible, a yoke is not just the thing that animals wore. It means a manner and a way of life. A rabbi expected his students to carry on his yoke, meaning his way of life. And listen to this. Do not be yoked. In other words, do not maintain the way of life together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? It always amazes me that when counseling with someone, I said, how did you come to that conclusion? 
well, I was talking to so-and-so, and whoever so-and-so is hates God. Say, so, whoa, whoa, no, they don't. They, they love God. Where do they go to church? Well, they don't. What in their life shows fruit of the kingdom? Well, they're a nice person. Are you kidding me? How biblically ignorant could we possibly be? In our generation of iPod and video and TV and pumping all of the electronic communication into us, somehow or another we've gotten to where we cannot distinguish a single chapter of the Bible as true. You can go to a church school for 12 years of your life and leave and cannot quote a chapter or a verse out of any book of the Bible other than John 3.16. Every time somebody quotes John 3.16 to me, I say, hey, what is 15 and what is 17? You don't know the number of times no one can answer that question. Well, we see it at baseball games. Yeah, please, please, dear God, for your sake, read the next verse. The most quoted and most misunderstood verse in all of the Bible. I'll read it to you in a minute. You know, some of you know I'm a finicky eater, right? I mean, yeah. God made me a Gentile because I have a strict diet of like pork and steak. That's about it. Every once in a while when I'm away from home, somebody will serve stew. And when I'm away from home, I don't eat it because I don't know what's in it. Every once in a while I'm at home and my wife serves stew. And I don't eat it because I know what's in it. <laughs> the world is trying to craft something. The devil is subtle. And he's trying to craft a kind of malignant stew that mixes darkness and light together. It produces a dull shade of gray. You need to understand something about gray. Gray is just coexisting. Gray is just being at peace with everybody, you know, no matter what it means. Gray makes the dark sheep feel good because you've compromised with them. Gray makes the pure white sheep feel good because you're worse than they are. Gray makes everybody happy. It just kind of meets in the middle. We don't like to admit how gray our lives often are. Think of your neighbors, whoever lives to your left and lives to your right. We won't, we won't even address the ones in front of you and behind you. If we walk up and ask them right now, is this person fanatical about Jesus? Would they know? Would they know? You can't ask anymore, are they a Christian? Because 80% of our nation claims to be a Christian. But you can look at the fruit of that tree and see it's just malignant stew. It's just a mixing of every kind of odd thing in the world. And let's just call it God. The gospel is an either or. You are either light or you are dark. I'm ashamed to say that I'm a part of a group that is called preachers who have taken what is either or and made it neither nor. Neither light nor dark. Just right. I mean, you know, let's just all get along. We can all agree that God's good, right? Muslim, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon. We can all agree God is good. My God wants me to cut your head off. This God wants me to have uh, multiple wives. 
This God says Jesus' blood's not enough, but oh, we can all agree God's good. No, I can't agree, because the guy that you call God is evil. And so are you. But I'm moral, and I'm good. Now, if you don't have an undying passion for Jesus that drives every part of your life, His righteousness is not in you, and you are evil. Well, you know, I've been a pretty good old boy all my life. Ephesians 2 says, you're filled with the Spirit of God, or filled with the Spirit of the Word. He calls it the spirit of disobedience who is now at work in those who do not believe. You don't understand, Eric, I believe. I can check that box off. No, you do not believe because it doesn't show in your life. You can believe there's unicorns, but if you're not out looking for them, you don't really believe it, do you? <coughs> Spineless preaching has led to something that is worse than the blind leading the blind. Hear this one. I'm proud of this one. It's the bland leading the bland. <laughs> six foot tall icicle behind the pulpit and 600 sheep sitting out there that are neither white nor black. They're neither light nor darkness. They're neither hot nor cold. Pastor's first name is Luke. His last name is Warm. <laughs> <laughs> the bland leading the bland. This will not repair the world. This will not make a difference in anyone's life. You know what it'll do? We can all sing Kumbaya. We can all just get along. You know, don't hurt anybody's feelings. Friends, have you ever read the gospel? Jesus hurt everybody's feelings. You know, I get this image sometimes. Aaron, have you ever been to a counseling meeting with Eric? What do you think it would be like when you meet the King of Kings? And he's always right. I usually only know just a little bit and you make me mad, what do you think is going to happen to him? <laughs> we better fear God. But it's gone. It's gone because everything's a great. In fact, I hope you can look forward to something. hope you can look forward to more one-armed preaching. No more on this hand, this, and on this hand, this. We want some one-armed preachers. There is one right way of God. We want to clearly delineate it. No more two opinions. No more wavering between two opinions. Some people say this and some people say that. Yes, and what do you say? Do you remember a conversation like that Jesus had with His disciples? They're right outside Caesarea Philippi. The background is all the foreign gods that the Romans worshipped and that some Jews snuck off to worship. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say this and some... What do you say? This is the job of pastor. Pastor's job is to put you into a position where what... Do you say, not with the words of your mouth, but with the deeds of your life, not on the one hand this and on the other hand that. Pastors have become experts in almost saying something. What on earth do you mean? I mean like a politician. Have you ever heard a politician answer a question? By the time he's done, you're not sure what the question was. <laughs> Is this wrong? Well, blah, 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 something about best for you, inherit something good. <coughs> and you have no idea whether or not the man is saying it's wrong. This is, this is disgraceful. It's the bland leading the bland. The goal of that, by the way, an expert in almost saying something, is to look like we're walking in the truth. I preach on sin, really? Did you ever call anybody's out? Did you ever say, in this room there are people that... Do you do that? Well, no, I just preach on sin. 
Well, you will succeed in never seeing anyone saved. It's not enough to say there's sin in the world. Turn on the news. We know that. The question is not, is there sin in the world? The question is, is there sin in your life, in your heart? Are you rooting it out? The question is not, does it get dark, but is darkness in you? That's the question. And if you sit in church all of your life and you're never put in that position, well, then you're in daycare instead of discipleship. But you like it and you pay for it. And my daycare leader is better than your daycare leader. He played football. 1 Peter 2. You see why we don't have a gymnasium yet? An older, wiser pastor told me, Brother, you're going to burn them up with preaching like that. We'll burn them up or burn them out. Dear friends, I urge you, hear this word, as aliens and strangers in the world, that doesn't sound like social with Sodom and chummy with Gomorrah, does it? Aliens and strangers in the world. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. They are warring against your soul. i got to tell you, something that happens very frequently in this church, which I would think... If we're unwise enough to compare ourselves with ourselves and compare ourselves with the others that are around us, I would say this church is pretty fired up. And even in this so-called fired up church, if you don't like Matthew's counsel because he's told you there is no magic to this, hate sin, love God, stop sinning, you pick up the phone and call me. And if I tell you the same thing, then you pick up the phone and call somebody else. Are you shopping for the answer that you want to hear? You're looking for somebody to do it for you. Are we so impotent spiritually that we really cannot take a stand against a sensual desire? i got to tell you, before I got married, before I fell in love with the king, I had lots of things working in my life that shouldn't be there. That's such a strong grip on me that when I became born again in love with Jesus, there was a tremendous battle. You know what, young man? Get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and go run 4 or 5 miles. It'll fix your problem. <laughs> there are a lot of things that you can do if you really hate sin and love Jesus. But if you've learned to coexist in the dark and you just want your sin and want to live in the church, I hope you're going to be really uncomfortable here. We want sheep and we're willing to convert goats, but we will not put up with an attitude that insults the Spirit of Jesus. I don't put up with it in myself. I'm really disappointed that there are times I'm not near the man of God I should be. I flat out below it. Vile, immoral sin. As if there's any other kind. But I refuse to stay there. I hate it enough and I love Jesus enough that there's nothing that is going to rule me habitually in my life. Jesus is my master. Let's talk habitual for a moment. Once in a year? Twice in a year? Once in a month? Twice in a month? Once in a week? 
Once in a day? Twice in a day? What is habitual, friends? How can anyone continue to sin if the love of God be in him? That's what 1 John says. So let's take an honest look in the mirror and say, is there evil in me or not? Dare I say, am I so overcome with evil that I've just tried to pass myself off as a Christian? You know, I have in my heart working a John Bunyan quote, but I, I just got to tell you, probably not 20% in the room that would recognize it. Because we don't read anymore. We don't read our Bibles. We don't read anything. We put a library in the church so you didn't even have to buy a book. It's only five or six of you that check any out. Because we really just don't care. We want to be, you know, I mean, I'm good like I am. I'm okay, you're okay. Let's not dig too deep, right? No, the Holy Ghost is going to dig deep. So I won't quote Bunyan to you. I mean, it's an immortal work of prose. It's unbelievable. People don't write this way anymore. But I just want to tell you, some men were on a journey. They came across a city. Magazine's name for it now. That ought to tell you something. Vanity Fair. They looked around, and when they saw the apparel of the people, and they saw what... Gaiety meant something different back then, but they saw the gaiety... Everybody seemed to be having such a good time. said they felt to themselves like barbarians, strangers. Now later they left the city and it was destroyed as the evangelist had said it would be. said, friends, the reason we don't feel like barbarians when we're walking around, we don't feel like the most backwards people on the planet, is because we're just like everybody else that's around us. People should see you as a little bit arcane, a little bit repressive. I was talking to some new friends the other day, and I told them I never thought I'd be the old fogey that was against social networking and everything. I want to tell you, I am. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'd rather see people pick up their Bibles. I'm having enough trouble finding enough time in the day to do the productive things. I don't understand where you find 18 hours to do the most unproductive garbage on the planet and call it ministry. What a joke. I mean, what a joke. I've seen it. It's not ministry. You administer to somebody, go to their house, look them in the eye. Send them a private message. Where's that in the gospel? Let's move on to the most quoted and least understood scripture of all time. Turn with me to John 3. <laughs> you know, I, it's occurred to me. You could leave this and think, golly, is that pastor telling me to get off Facebook and throw away my TV and, you know, uh, go be uh, Amish? I want you to know, if it can be done, I've done it. Uh, I used to unplug the TV when I left and never watched it while I was there. We spent years not doing that. I also would not drive 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone. Uh, I couldn't be any more legalistic, all trying to get my life right. It didn't succeed in getting all of the darkness out of me. I'm not suggesting that we can suddenly change our environment so that there is nothing that is unproductive, nothing that is sinful, nothing that is trying to pollute us. I'm suggesting that you can flood your life with light to the point that's what you have a taste for. Amen. I'm suggesting that you can so be filled with Jesus and so yearn for Him that you actually put into practice abhorring what is evil and people who practice it. I've got to tell you, if you'd rather hang out with your friends from work than your friends from church... Well, I either want to go meet the people you work with and see that somehow or another there's a secular kingdom of God out there, or I want to know what's going on in your heart. 
You'd rather deer hunt than you'd rather worship with the saints? Well, maybe we could build you an idol in the tribe of Dan and call it Samaria. See, at the end of this, there's going to be no lying. Everything will be exposed. I'd rather deal with it now, personally. I hate to be standing before the angels, Father Abraham, Jesus himself, all the saints that went before us and lost their lives for a love of the gospel and have to stand there and have something as depraved, as sickening, as pornography be poured out before all the world. I'd whole lot rather repent now. Do you hear me, young men? You got a chance to get this right. I don't know how many chances you'll get. Do you want all the light you can get knowing it's going to expose your darkness? Or do you want an opportunity and want an opportunity to change? Or do you just want to make this whole process suitable for yourself? In John 3, start with me in the 15th verse. Why don't we start in the 14th verse? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Wow, eternal life, that sounds like such a good thing. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. You know how many people have no idea even what that means? You see it uh, in, in medical emblems. You see it in all kinds of places. have no idea what it means. In the book of Numbers, the people were being ravaged by serpents. You want to take a wild guess as to what a serpent represents in the Bible? Sand. Ravaged by it. They were dying. All of Israel was being bitten by these things, and there was only one cure. And Jesus is saying, I will be lifted up like that cure. Well, that's great. Jesus will be lifted up, but what does it mean about you? You're being ravaged by sin. Snake bitten and don't know it. You know who Jesus is talking to? A Pharisee. You may have been taught these Pharisees are bad people. No, I assure you, he was much more morally upright than you are. I assure you, he knew more of the Word than anyone in this church. I assure you of that. And he was snake-bitten and didn't even know it. And Jesus is saying, I'll be lifted up. Oh, let's get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We love that Scripture. We hang it from baseball stadiums. It's the only Scripture that most lost people can quote. It, it, the, if there's another one, it's judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> Look at the next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Condemnation is already there. Snake-bitten is already there. Overrun with sin is already there. Everybody that holds up John 3.16, for God so loved the world, we're ignoring something. There's something you have to be saved from. There's a sinful condition in a human being that must be dealt with. And to just say, do you accept Jesus as your Savior so you can go to heaven ignores the problem. And our churches are full of people who claim Jesus but have ignored their own sin problem. Come on, somebody tell me I'm lying. Tell me I'm wrong. 
We sit in church week after week. I'm repenting and hope nobody notices. I assure you, God does. I assure you. This is the verdict. Isn't it interesting that the verdict is given before the work on the cross is done, before the resurrection? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. This is why preachers don't preach about evil deeds anymore. We talk about your best life. We talk about prosperity. We talk about whatever we can that makes you feel better about yourself and it ignores the problem. Yourself is the problem. The darkness that is inside of us that the light must drive out is the problem. Matthew Pirro asked a group of people last night, if you sat on your couch and you ate three meals a day and you only got off the couch twice a week, what would you look like? They were young people, so you get answers like, you'd have to you know, remove me from the house with a crane. <laughs> Friends, what do you think happens when you only examine your life when you're in church on Wednesday and Sunday? What do you think happens when you only absorb the light on Wednesday and Sunday? Our churches are photophobic. They're scared of the light. It's not popular to have prophets anymore. We're non-profits organizations. <laughs> because if there were a prophet and he pointed out sin, it might make somebody uncomfortable. Maybe even the pastor. Turn with me to John 4. That seems like the thing to do. Yeah. In John 4, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Look at verse 7. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. It goes on to explain that it's life. It's eternal life. This is the sum of preaching, isn't it? We say, Jesus is the gift of eternal life. Jesus will fill you with the Holy Ghost. Jesus will so fill your life with His power that it will just overflow and overflow and overflow. And that sounds great. I want you to notice Jesus did not stop there. What did the 15th and 16th verse say? Go call your husband. Why did He tell her to call her husband? Because He knew she didn't have one. At least not a legitimate one. She could not receive the eternal gift he was talking about without dealing with the sin that was in her life. Come on, you guys are Bible scholars. Put your finger on the 39th verse for me. The 39th verse, the woman gives her testimony. What is her testimony? Is her testimony, Hey, I want all you people to come and listen. I found the living water. I found the eternal gift of God. I found the life. Her testimony has come hear about a man who told me everything I ever did. Here's a man who called out my secret sin, the thing that was preventing me from moving properly with God. Charles Finney said the most effective way to ensure nobody gets saved is to talk constantly about sin but never talk about anybody's personal sin. 
I want to tell you that I think that Jesus' pattern is the best one. I think that what we're calling the church is largely a bunch of people that are gray. A malignant stew. And somewhere in there is a remnant that really is the bride of Christ. That wouldn't care how humiliated, how crushed the revealing of their dark deeds was. They just want more of Jesus. When we sing more love, more power, more of you in our life, you know there's only one way to get it? must repent. We don't even know what that means anymore. Well, I kind of feel bad that I did it. Now, change your whole life. Repay it if you can. And announce it. Announce to people. No, I have to protect my reputation. That's exactly why you can't be safe. You have to lose your life if you want to find it. You have to lose your life if you want to find it. That means you stop caring what everyone thinks. Look, would everybody close their eyes, raise their hand, lift a pinky? I'm joking. Please don't do it. It makes me sick. If you cannot be saved in a room full of light with people staring at you, you're not going to make it the moment you walk out of the church. Come on, do you understand how absurd this has gotten? Sometimes we'll even pray the sinner's prayer for them and just say, you know, no. How long before we just say, hey, send a check from home and we'll call you saved? And that little new, 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 uh, neat little mark you got, the chip thing, you know, hey, just slide it under the offering plate. How long? I want to tell you, I take responsibility. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. Way too long we've compromised this. Way too long in my life the signal has not been clear enough. Not blown the trumpet like we should. But now what's your excuse? I want to read to you. You just listen to me. This is Ephesians 5. I'm going to start in verse 8. We should not be here to figure out how to better get along in the darkness, friends. We're here to learn how to walk in the light. Here comes verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have nothing to do with them. People are shocked that we'll throw somebody out of the church. You know? If in 1970 you didn't have it right, and in 1980 you're still not getting it right, and in 1990 you're not, now we're in 2010, and you got the same sin choking you to death and it's affecting everyone else, I'm going to throw you out of the church. You know why? The Word says do not associate with somebody who calls himself a believer and is sexually immoral. If I've gone through Matthew, Matthew 18, gone once, gone twice, gone three times, brought it before the church and there's no repentance, they become a pagan, an unbeliever, a tax collector. How could you do that? What gives you the right? Jesus gave me the right. Well, there's other churches. I know, and they'll love you. They'll love you. Gray sheep make everybody comfortable. We're not supposed to have anything to do with deeds of darkness. We're supposed to expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. You just post it on your Facebook page. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
For it is the light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine on you. This is our prophetic word to the church. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine on you. The best thing that can happen is deeds in your life be revealed. They be revealed so that you can get free. So that you can go serve Him. Christ's light will shine upon you, and that light will drive out darkness. Unless, of course, you love darkness. I want to remind you of something because we're going to close here. I'm hungry. <laughs> it is always the most difficult phase of the night. It's those wee early hours in the morning. I don't have any problem at midnight. No problem at one, two, and three. And when we get to that next marker, four, five, and six, and the sun hasn't come up, that's a really difficult time. Anybody that's ever worked night shift knows that. Yeah. It is going to get darker and darker. The church can cry revival. The church can run around calling darkness light all at once. The deeds of wicked men will grow more wicked. There's depravity pumped in on our televisions today that would not have been mentioned out loud 30 years ago. I'm sure somebody will get mad at this, and that's okay. I may not have succeeded in making you mad yet. We wear things in public, especially during the summertime, that used to wouldn't have made it down the steps of your house out of your bedroom. And we don't see anything wrong with it because everybody's doing it. There are certain parts of your bodies, lady, that there's only one person should ever see. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Friends, my hope is that during this darkness, we shine brighter. My hope is that during this darkness, we take hold of what is really Christ and put away all the self-illumination and the ridiculous parlor tricks that are passing for Christianity. I just want to... I hate to always pick on this, but i just got to tell you, those of you that love TV ministry, there are some good ones out there. And I'm not telling you there's not. But Hollywood has about as much to do with the gospel of Jesus as a gangster has the right to lecture on honesty. I mean, it is absurd. And when you turn on the TV, if you cannot see that in it, you're deceived. When all people want is your money, when all they want is to make you feel good about yourselves, and they don't know you, and they're not looking you in the eye, they're not meeting in your home, it is not ministry. You show me where in this book it says reach the masses and try to pastor them through a television set. I love some TV ministry. I love radio, internet, all of those things. They are no substitute for the body of Christ in the local assembly of believers. Amen. It will always be darkest right before His light pierces the sky with His coming. It's a three-faceted light. I'm going to tell you about that three-faceted light as we close. But I'm going to tell you as you learn it, here's the temptation that you have to deal with. Do not hide it under a bushel. Do not put it under your bed. This is what the gospel declares. Don't hide it. What does the little song say? Don't hide it under a bushel? No. 
I'm going to let it shine, I'm going to let it shine, I'm going to let it shine. How well we sing those songs. How well does your life do it? Here's the three-faceted light. This I do want you to write down. The light is the Savior, the Scripture, and the saints. The light is the Savior in John 8.12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Never darkness, only the light of the life. The Savior is the light of the world. If He is in you, you're not in darkness. The light of the Scripture comes from Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. If the light of God's Scripture is shining in your life, it makes you want to follow His Word. The third light is maybe the most ambiguous but clearly stated in Scripture. It's the saints. Matthew 5, 14-16 You are the light of the world. A city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds, not your good creeds, your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. Saints, I had originally thought we'd have an altar call. I thought I'd give you time to work it out. Now I want you to use the rest of your week to do that. You cannot go let your light shine before you have dealt with your darkness. You cannot go minister to people until you have been ministered to. You cannot go set people free while you are carrying shackles of bondage. We're all suffering from Christianity presented in a way that never caused you to go across the starting line. You're somewhere in the middle of the race and you never started at the right place and wondering why it's weak and ineffective and it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you never dealt with the darkness in your own life. I'm encouraging you to do that. Not because I don't love you, but because I do very, very much. Not because I can't relate to you. This is one of those messages that will make it on my iPod, I promise. Nobody will preach to me like me. What am I going to say? That dude's strong? <laughs> i say he talks funny. You should have met him when I first did. <laughs> Do away with the malignant stew and get some manner. Amen? Stand to your feet. Most of the time you eat, then get dessert. In this church, dessert is worship. And then you get to suffer through a word. If they're particularly harsh to you, if they're particularly difficult, consider that they might need to be. If it's like honey on your lips, oil on your head, then praise God, you might be where you need to be. My job is not to make everybody happy. It's to see if we can get people to turn around, to repent. And not somebody somewhere out there. I'm not preaching to an anonymous crowd. I'm talking to you, each one of you. That's our goal. You meet him there, he will meet you there. I promise that. I didn't have a sinner's prayer because I was saved alone in my bedroom. I didn't have wonderful expectations of a great life ahead of me. I just knew that what I was in was wretched and I had made it that way. And I asked him to change me. Friends, authentic Christianity 
will leave you changed. And it will keep changing you. If you hadn't changed your mind about anything in the last five years, you're dead. Only dead things refuse to grow. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we have reverenced Your Word today. We believe that it is true and that everything else is false. Your Word says that through constant use, the mature learn to distinguish good from evil. Lord, I confess that we are immature. In the most basic areas of our life, we fail to distinguish good from evil. So we invite Your presence, Lord. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would magnify to us darkness that needs to be driven out that we might be more like You. Lord, we don't stand before You a hopeless case. You have made a way for us. But we know that we are to be more than we stand here today. And we ask for Your kingdom to come, for Your will to be done in our lives the same way it's obeyed in the heavenly realms. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to move chairs to the side. We're going to bring in tables and uh, we're going to eat. Everybody good? Put your stuff.